We can dismiss our kids to children's ministry, and the rest of you can have a seat. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, we'll be looking at Proverbs chapter 10 today. Last night, we had our church progressive dinner, and it is certainly the most progressive thing you'll ever catch me doing. Progressive dinner, for those of you that are unaware, is simply where you have uh, one course at one house, and then you drive to another house and have another course, and another house and have another course, and so on and so forth. And I suppose that, you know, it would be most healthy if we walked between the houses. Uh, that's not what happened, but we had a wonderful night of fellowship and essentially did appetizers at one house for an hour, then appetizers at another house for an hour, and so on and so forth. So thank you for those homes that hosted. And for those of you that did not attend, we're going to have another one in March and encourage you to be at, at that particular progressive dinner. You know, it was, not only was it great fun, but it was great fellowship and a beautiful witness. And when I'm in those moments, sometimes I just, and you probably know this about me, sometimes I just like to sit and sort of watch the thing that's happening. And I just thank God for what I see happening. And I also often, when I see God doing something beautiful amongst his people, find myself wishing that I could uh, grab, you know, with some kind of um, cosmic claw machine, I could grab one of my unbelieving friends wherever they're at and just like plunk them down here for a moment and just say, look at how beautiful this is and look at how good this is and look at how true this is and so on and so forth. And that was one of the feelings that I had last night. And part of that feeling is tied to something, a frustration that I've experienced, and I think many of you, if you've walked with Christ for some time, have experienced, especially just in recent years, and that is just this kind of weariness at being distinguished, to the world anyway, by what you're mostly, mostly by what you're against. Have you ever get, I feel it's very wearying to sort of be um, known as the Christian who is uh, as against this or against that. Now, Biblically, that is just part of the deal. First um, Peter chapter 4, Peter tells that congregation, you're going to not do some stuff that the pagans are going to do, and they're going to find it surprising that you don't join them in their debauchery, and they'll ridicule you for it. So part of the, the problematic or the weariness of being known as the against people is just stuck to us. It's just a part of Christianity. But I don't think any of us think it's really the main part or ever intended to be the main part. It would be nice occasionally to be known for something positive, not simply something negative. It'd be, no, it'd be nice to be known for things that we do, not merely things that we don't do. And today I'm going to introduce a couple-week series on one of God's created means that helps us to bring praise to his name and distinguish ourselves as Christians in a positive way. And that thing that God has created is work. God has given us work as a means of distinguishing the value and virtue of Jesus over and above all other gods. It's essentially the competition of wise. In every workplace or in every home, wherever work is being done, whether it's being done by a Christian or non-Christian, there is more or less the same activities taking place across the board. Many of the same activities that take place in a Christian home with a Christian stay-at-home mother are happening in a non-Christian home with a non-Christian stay-at-home mother. The work itself appears to be the same. 
but the wise behind the work. These are very different. And over time, those differences actually affect the outcome of the work itself. And so God, by changing our hearts, has allowed us over time to show a difference in the quality and consistency and integrity of our work. And it is God's good design that as Christians built on the finished work of Jesus, we go out into the world and display the glories of the gospel in one way in particular among many, and that is through our excellence in work. So look at me with Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. I think it's fair to say that in this text, righteousness and hard work are closely related. Let's keep that text up on the screen if we can and just look at this a little bit more carefully. The connection between righteousness and hard work. In verse 3, we see that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. But in verse 4 and 5, we see that the main way that God ensures that the righteous don't go hungry is by making them diligent and prudent and hardworking. So we see an overlap between righteousness and work ethic. We see an overlap between effort and righteousness. And on the other hand, we have, because this is Proverbs, and Proverbs deals mostly in contrasts, we have another character, and this is a negative one. And upon closer inspection, we might even say that there are two kinds of bad workers put forth in the book of Proverbs. The first one is obvious. We see it in verse 5, and that is the sluggard, the one who does not work. The one who does not work, the one who does not work enough. And we've read about the sluggard before. Back in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 through 11, we saw this verse. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And we read about this again, as I said, in verse 5, that very same person in verse 5 of chapter 10 who was sleeping during harvest time, bringing shame to his father. But look back at verse 2, Proverbs 10, verse 2. Does this have anything to do with work? It says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Well, we've already established a connection between the righteous in this passage and righteous work. We've already established a connection between the righteous and, and careful, diligent, prudent, hard work. Is there a connection between the wicked and the way they work? Well, this gets a little more complex because the lazy person who just doesn't work at all, they're typically presented in Proverbs as not having anything. They don't have anything because they don't try to get anything. So what about the wicked? Because the wicked in verse 2 talks about them accumulating treasures. Well, you might say that there are actually two kinds of laziness in God's eyes, and both are sin but one of them is just sin and one of them is wicked or evil. 
The first kind of laziness in God's eyes is sleep, slumber, and sluggardness. Sluggardliness. Saying that word is more work than some sluggards will put in today. On the one hand, you have someone who's just not doing much. On the other hand, you have the scammer. So you've got the sluggard over here, and you've got the scammer over here, the one who is committed to fraud and theft and so forth. And it's that person the Lord considers to be abominable and wicked and evil, not just merely sinful. And I suspect, and this isn't a main feature of this sermon, it's just something to think about. You'll see why I think it's important to think about in a moment. I suspect that these two people, the sluggard and the scammer, are many times motivated both by the desire for comfort first. It's just that one of them has a cheaper comfort in mind and one of them has like a more expensive comfort in mind. So the sluggard prefers the comfort of cheap booze and sleep, easily attainable. The scammer is still motivated by pleasure, still motivated by comfort, but he simply has a more expensive menu in mind. In the end, what I think we can say is that both the sluggard and the scammer are allergic to an honest day's work. Does that make sense? They're both trying to get around the high and holy calling of hard work. One by not engaging in it at all, and the other by cutting corners using deception, dishonesty, and trickery. So in Proverbs chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, look at that with me. The next chapter, beginning in verse 1, we see this verse. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. The abomination is a big word. It's, a, it's, the, it's probably the worst word in terms of describing God's opinion of something. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but just weight, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Wickedness or riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So now we are actually thinking a little more carefully about this scammer side of the evil worker. And what you've got here is someone, let's just create an illustration this made a lot more sense in an agrarian economy, so let's kind of go back into that world. Suppose you are a middleman who buys wholesale from wheat wholesale from a farmer and sale, sells to retail outlets selling, let's say, bread. You're the middleman. And you have a scale set up because you will buy the wheat from the farmer at a certain price per pound. And let's say that the prevailing market price, doing economics, Doing economics at 10.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Kuiper was right. <laughs> Some of you know that reference. So let's say the prevailing market price for wheat is a dollar, a dollar per pound. But you set up your scale so that a pound actually reads on the scale as three quarters of a pound, right? So this allows you to pay less for the wheat. Anyone want to tell me the percentage less? We're doing math now at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. You're paying less than what you should be paying. You're cheating the farmer and you're cutting corners to try to go get ahead. You're trying to reduce the amount of work you do 
to make money. And what's the net result of that is you're actually giving someone else more work to do. You're stealing their labor, which means you're stealing their life. And this is how God sees things. That farmer spent X amount of time engaged in activity. You agreed upon a price. And so that you could cut corners and, and live in more comfort, you're costing this man, this farmer, his life. But if you really wanted to dominate, you would do something even more treacherous. You would advertise a $1.20 purchase price for wheat. All the farmers would flock to you. All of your middleman competitors would not have access to product, and they're now struggling because they can't get enough product. And you're saying to all the farmers, I won't pay you a dollar per pound for wheat. I'll pay you a dollar twenty per pound for wheat. Now, maybe some of your competitors who are already behind the curb reluctantly increase. They're like, I don't know how he's paying this, but if I don't match it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go out of business. And you're doing this, and you're able to do this because you've rigged your scales with a 20% deficiency, and so you're actually not paying any more for the wheat. Might be paying a little bit less than even average market price, depending on how you rig your scales. And so the competitors that you have, they all go out of business, either because they can't find enough product or because they're overpaying it, and now you have all of this excess product, and then with the excess product, you flood the retail market with supply, thus reducing costs even more and you sell your ill-gotten wheat at a slight loss to market value, which forces your competitors on both ends to lose money, while you gain money on both ends, and pretty soon you're the only wheat market in town. And now that you're the only wheat market in town, you can pay whatever you want to the suppliers, to the farmers. And so you start paying them 50 cents a pound. And they can't actually afford to do the work they're doing at 50 cents a pound, so slowly, stubbornly, because that's what farmers are, slowly but stubbornly, they eventually sell you the land. And now you own everything. You own the entire middle market, the, the, the middleman market, you own the retail side, and you own the production side. All because you rigged a scale and maybe paid off the scale inspector. Now, I wrote that out in five minutes, and I don't know if that tells me how diabolical my mind is, or how actually quite tempting it is to cut corners and make someone else work extra hard so you can work extra easy. Point is, is that work is actually a moral battleground. The whys actually matter a great deal. And it's not hard to see how, even as Christians, our whys behind work need repetitive refining. So I'm not offering you anything new this morning. I'm not offering anything insightful. What I'm offering you is a refined, revisiting, a reclarification of why we work. And over time, that why will make a difference. It will make a difference in your life, but most importantly, it will make a difference in the whole world. Now, another reason why I went to great lengths to go into all of that is because I believe I have just described 2023's workforce to a T. There are three kinds of workers. Those who have integrity and are working, those who are lazy and are quiet quitting, and those who are scamming, cheating, stealing. 
And what I want to suggest to you today, because remember how we started the, the conversation this morning, man, it'd be nice if there was one way we could distinguish ourselves in a positive sense. What I want to suggest to you today is that in this current moment, you have the opportunity to stand out in a way you never could before with a positive Christian witness simply by being righteous in your work. There has never been a moment that I'm aware of in my lifetime in which market conditions are so dismal related specifically to the quality of labor available. If you are a hirer or a manager, or you oversee individuals, or you depend on paying laborers for your business to work, you are going crazy right now trying to find quality workers. And this is why I'm, I'm throwing this to you as don't think about it as money for you. Don't think about it as gain. Think about it as this is a moment for the church to shine and let our good works shine before man in one highly specific area that God has ordained from the foundation of the earth, and that is our work should just wind up looking better. And I think we're in a particular moment where that looking better isn't very high bar. So think of this. With work, right now, you have the opportunity, first, to obey God, because God's calling you to do work. Secondly, to spread the glory of Christ. Third, to provide for your families, to provide for the church's advancement of the gospel, to advance in various ways beyond your peers, and maybe even become wealthy in earthly riches, and certainly become wealthy in eternal riches. There is simply a unique moment at hand in the culture that I want to alert you to, and it's going to favor people who have the right why behind their work. Look back at verse 5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. One of the key meanings behind that verse is that it's important to recognize when it is time to rest and when it is time to work. And let's add a third level, when it is time to work ridiculously hard. In a farmer's life, throughout the year, work drops down to its bare minimum in the winter and then kind of runs in a relatively kind of standard rate of effort. It's probably still a 12-hour day. Uh, maybe in the, in the winter you're working eight. The rest of the time you're working, say, 12. But when harvest comes, we don't do work-life balance. That's not the time for that. The winter's the time for that. The summer is the time to run around like a crazy person picking up all the fruit laying on the ground. A simple formulaic thing, whatever you were taught, it was probably a list of rules, not a heart attitude, not a, not a complex, wise, nuanced perspective. So, so if you're younger and you've been taught about work-life balance, you need to understand that's actually just a law someone gave you who is too unwise or busy to explain that there are levels to this thing. There is a time when going bananas in work is the right thing to do. And there are many times when it's the wrong thing to do. One of the things I aspire to do this year as a pastor 
is to help Providence Community Church become more Sabbatarian. What is Sabbatarian? I aspire to help our church begin to treat Sundays with more honor and intention as a day of deep, intentional, restorative rest. So one of the tricks to being a godly hard worker as opposed to just a crazy person is to know, is to rest when God tells you to rest. The baseline of the gospel is actually pretty simple. You can't work like you need to work until you rest in Christ. So rest comes first. And the reason why we shifted our week orders so that now Sunday is the first day of the week. By the way, that's, you need to not forget that. Sunday's the first day of the week, not the last is because as Christians, we begin our work in the rest of Christ, okay? So knowing when to work and when to rest is fundamental to wisdom, and there are some people, boomers, Xers, who overwork and don't know when to rest, and there are some people, obviously broad strokes here, there are some people beneath those, that sacred line that maybe have the opposite problem. And they're constantly worried about overworking. And they're, the way that they're thinking about that is with as little faith as the boomers have in overworking. And with as little wisdom. That's not how life is. It's more complex than that. And sometimes the harvest is here and it's time to get to work. And I would tell you, in my opinion, what has happened in a maniacal kind of devious way is that this culture, particularly those younger than me, have been convinced through all sorts of global alarmism and pessimism toward wealth and suspicion towards productivity, you've all been told that it's winter time and it's not your winter time. This is not the time to cuddle up on the couch with a cup of cocoa and Xanax. <laughs> or weed. What's happening right now, in, as you live, as you do life, what's happening right now, it, this is the time to hustle. Hustle within the boundaries of God, the moral boundaries, the restful Sabbatarian boundaries. But I'm telling you, I think I'm right about this. Um, I'm certainly right about it as so far as you can apply the scripture directly, but I think I'm trying to go a little beyond that. I need to be careful. I would tell you, in my opinion, I have never seen a time in which Work has the potential to be elevated as a means of glorifying Christ. And that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not arguing that you're going to go out and make a ton of money. I think that could happen. What I'm saying is, is if you love the glory of Jesus, your work is uniquely positioned in this particular moment to make much of him. So if you have integrity... As I mentioned, the bar is pretty low right now. If you have integrity that runs all the way down, integrity that works the same whether people are watching or not, and that's a fundamental to the theology of work in the scriptures, you might wonder, why did, you know, what, what explains extensive innovation explosion, GDP explosion, gross, gross domestic product explosion? Like, why are things, like, why, why, where did this come from? Look at the 1500s when the doctrine of vocation was recovered, when everyone saw their work as priestly work, and most importantly, when everyone started to think of God as caring about them individually. 
An amazing thing happens when individuals see all of their time as under the inspection and oversight and importance to God. And it makes you not what Paul talks about in Colossians and Ephesians, an eye pleaser, where you work one way when you can be seen and another when you can't be seen. Again, think of their cultural conditions right now. Think of the game changer this could be. If you work the same, whether you're being monitored or not, if you can have integrity, if you can work the same, whether anyone's watching or not, if you can show up on time, for heaven's sakes. And here's a key one. If you can have your home in sufficient order so that when you go to work, you can actually give your employer's goals the attention they're paying for. If you can get better and better at working with the right why. And this is a process. None of us have this figured out. But if you can get better at better, better and better at working with the right why, and if you can view laziness, either in the scamming side or the slumbering side, as a real vice, friends, I really think this season in the culture is a harvest season. And that this is a time to work hard as unto the Lord. This is a time to gather all of the fruit laying on the ground that the lazy guy should have picked up. And this is a time to gather the fame of Jesus that the scammers and the lack of those that have no integrity are defaming. It's a chance for you to be honest and simple-hearted and to just work with a smile on your face and make much of Jesus in the process. So I think I can speak, as I, I, I think I'm speaking mostly to you in your early career days, your mid-career days, and I just want to speak on behalf of people that are in my season of life. We are eager to help you pick up all the bread you can. We are eager to support you in this season of work. We are eager to support one another in the season of work, but really, I think one of the challenges challenges or tasks or privileges, I think, of, of this particular season of life I find myself in is get to help younger people advance in this area of their lives in a way that I did not advance. It took me a longer time. So with all of that sort of aspirational stuff put before you, and that's really the introduction of the next few weeks in terms of what we're going to be doing about Let's talk about the why or the goal of work. I think it's very important that we understand what an attitude is and then kind of why it matters in so many areas of life. I don't know if this is helpful, but I tend to think of attitudes as kinds of platforms that we stand on. So I think of like an attitudinal platform. It's, it's something that I'm standing on. All of us could be doing the exact same activity with different attitudes in our heart, right? But since the world isn't pure materialism, this is, you've got to check yourself for all these, all the misinformation you're fed constantly. The world isn't purely material, it's also spiritual. It's a complex mesh of the two. So the things that are going on in your heart actually wind up manifesting in various ways in the work you do, especially over longer periods of time. So somehow, if you're standing on a shaky platform, in the short term, your work may look just like the person who's standing on a firm platform. But over the course of time, 
the work itself begins to look differently. We are not purely material beings. We don't live in a purely material world. Our spiritual hearts, our attitudes, the attitudinal platforms we stand on while we work, they wind up becoming a part of the finished product. And this is especially true in any work that kind of is measured in, in extended periods of time. Um, this is like true for parenting, for instance. Do you want like the one attitudinal platform that will change so much down the road? Always fight to see parenting as a profound pleasure and honor. If that is what you're standing on, the end product is going to look different, even if you do the exact same thing as someone else who is doing it out of sense of obligation and I have tos, or doing it out of sense of fear. Well, I don't want my kid to turn out like this, or I don't want my do all these other motivations. All of these platforms we stand on when we do work. Ten years, twenty years go by, that platform finds its way into the thing we're doing, the, the art we're creating, the sculptor, sculpture we're sculpting. And so work is very much this way because there, you'll actually parent for less time than you'll work. It's, 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 it's a thing that's measured. I wish that was not true. I'd like to be done, but uh, no. Uh, it's a thing that's measured over a long period of time. And so this platform that you're standing on really will translate eventually into what you produce. Now, it seems undeniable, given proper definitions, that the following statement is true. All of the most innovative work that has ever been accomplished, all of the work that has lasted, has come out of some place of worship or love. I think that's true. And I think for the Christian, worship and love are kind of similar, and we can get into that a little bit more. Case in point, what is left standing from the ancient world? What was the stuff that was constructed the biggest or the best so as to endure excessive amounts of wear and tear over time? Temples. Monuments. Things produced with metaphysical intention. Things produced with reverence, adoration, love, maybe just some good old-fashioned fear of a dark and gloomy afterlife. So I think when we analyze the work that lasts, we can say that the work that lasts is work built out of a heart of reverence for something. Okay? I'm creeping up on an actionable idea, by the way. We're going we're gonna to get to a, an actual thing you can do at some point here. I would summarize it this way. The key to exceptional work is love. The key to exceptional work is love. There is no other motivation that can cause people to go to great lengths that, that, that surpasses the way that love causes people to go to great lengths. People will not die to kill their enemies very often. There's a small group of those people living in a certain place in the world right now. But for the most part, people will not die to kill their enemies. Many people will die to save their loved ones. Love just gets you farther down the road in terms of actual production in the world than any other motivation. 
And I think one of the reasons that we could think about the great resignation insofar as it's related to COVID, for instance, is if you don't love the right thing, say you love your health over and above other things, or you love your safety, or you love this or that, the love has to be sufficiently deep and grand and beautiful and compelling to get you through multiple decades. Many people find work so frustrating because they intuitively understand the connection between love and work, but they get the ideas all mixed up because that's what sin does. It takes all the wires, and God made the wires, and it just unplugs them and plugs them in the wrong places and so on and so forth. It, it messes up our connections. And so lots of people intuitively understand there's some connection between work and love, and a lot of people, especially younger people, think the idea is that I should love my work. No, you should love through your work. Loving your work will eventually come as you love through your work. I have certain tools in my slightly hoarderish tool collection that I use repeatedly to do other people or my family good. And I look at those tools with a kind of affection because it's a thing that lets me do something that expresses my love for others, right? So you've been told you need to love your work. It isn't true. You need to learn to love with your work. And eventually what will happen is that the Pavlovian affiliation will occur. There's this really cool thing I observe when I watch, I watch a lot of UFC, and they often do these uh, introductory videos, and they'll take these athletes to their, they'll take the, like a day in the life of these athletes, and they'll get to a point, where, almost invariably in these introductory videos, they'll get to a point where they'll take, they'll, they'll follow the athlete to his gym. Now, when he walks into that gym, he is going to be tortured in a way that none of us, well, maybe a couple of us, could withstand. It's a hard place. Uh, the way that these people work out is devastatingly difficult and full of like an exertion level we can't imagine. And here's what you'll see when they walk in almost every time. An involuntary grin pops up on their face when they see that door. And I've thought a lot about like why, why is this? I've seen it so many times. It's involuntary. They get close to the gym, pop, what's going on? They're about to go in and suffer but of course, over time, their brains have developed a fairly complex, multi-step process of understanding, you could say it's Pavlovian, that says, when I go in here, I walk out with endorphins. And so they've, they've, they've actually rewired their brain, but it had to go through a long period of rewiring to get there, but there's an involuntary smile that comes on their face because their bodies know, this is going to make me feel good eventually. If you can learn to shift from I need to love my work to I can love through my work, eventually those two things become the same thing. This is the way it actually processes over a long period of time. So you can't go in there thinking, I want to stand on the attitude of love for my job. It's not the right platform. You can't even, 
as crazy as this is, you cannot even stand on the attitude of loving your family. Honestly, your family is often ungrateful. They don't understand what you do. They think it's simpler than it is. And sometimes they're just stinkers. And also, don't forget, you are a sinner, and you're not great at loving people anyway. Not even that motivation is the proper platform to stand on. And you, I mean, we, we won't even get into the ridiculous notion that you would go in and work out of love for self. This is another reason for the great resignation. This is another reason for quiet quitting. People have become overly simplistic in their understanding of the pursuit of happiness, and they equate, if I, don't, if I do this action, I don't feel immediately happy, it's the wrong action. And so lots of people are just leaving because their simple, animalistic brains can't process multi-step pursuits of happiness. They're like, I want to love myself. I don't feel like I'm loving myself right now. Moving on. So what is the love sufficient what is the platform that is sturdy enough and high enough to work from? We know it has something to do with love. We'll look back at the text. Look at verse 1, Proverbs 10. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Now, I want you to notice how verse 1 and verse 5 form bookends. There's a technical theological term for what's happening here. It's called a chiastic structure. And verse 1 and verse 5 have the similar idea. And everything contained in the side of that is sort of uh, the nugget. Verse 1 emphasizes that we should do good things to make our father glad. And the last verse, verse 5, same thing. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So what you see here is the platform to work from. And it was, it was partially covered by a lack of, of clarity about the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament. But Jesus comes, and that's his favorite word, father. And he shows us the father, right? That's what Jesus does. And so now we have a really simple idea built into this passage, and that is simply this. Jesus worked really hard. We often think of the hard work Jesus had to do. He had to die on a cross. He was a hard work. What we often forget is that Jesus was a hard worker. So, so much of a hard worker, he frequently skipped meals, frequently missed meals, and worked so hard that his family thought he was crazy. And what was his motivation? What was the platform he was standing on? He was standing on the platform of love for the Father, of making the Father known, of bringing many to the Father, that is the platform that Jesus stood on to do his work, and that is the platform you get to stand on now to do your work. Not love for self, not love of the work itself, not love for family, love for the Father. And for many of us who are not especially emotional and do not kind of necessarily swim in the waters of what you might call emotional faith, I don't have 
this is going to sound terrible. I don't have as much of a love relationship with Jesus. I, I wouldn't describe my walk with God as a love relationship with Jesus in the way that many mean it. I love God, but I don't love God like a girl loves God. And what that means for me is when I start telling you and commending love and worship and so forth, I have to be honest with you. I don't want you to get caught up in an expectation that's not biblical, that's more cultural, and that may be, like me, not really how you've been wired. So how do I love God through my work, or what do I think that means, and so on and so forth? Well, I think that when we look at Jesus' love for the Father— we see something that is really about making the Father known. I, I have never once in 27 years of marriage wanted to hide my wife from someone. I have always thought, you need to meet this crazy, complicated, fun person. I push her into the crowd and then I drive away. No. <laughs> I, my love for my wife is obviously complex and definitely different in many ways than my love for God. But one of the things that's similar is, is that I really want people to know my wife. And so if you're like me and you're not having trouble with the whole Jesus is my boyfriend shift in the culture... It's like, he's not my boyfriend. <laughs> You're like, what does it even mean to love God? What does it even mean to worship? What, is, what does all this mean? Honestly, a fairly consistent biblical thread that's not someone making something up to sell a record or a book is worship is, I'm sure there's emotion involved sometimes and so on and so forth. Really, though, worship often is, I want God's name to be known. That's how I love God. I want God to be known. I want God to be praised. I want God to be glorified. That's what I think of when I think of worship. Sometimes I sing, maybe half the time, I sing praises to God to fill the air with praises to God because the air should be filled with praises to be God because God deserves the air to be filled with praises to God. And I think when we talk about love that way, especially as we're thinking about a platform to stand on, an attitude to live in, a way to go about our work, a why, the why. I think that starts to click. Apostle Paul, I think, saw it that way, very much so. He says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So the whole aim of work is to bless the Father. That's verse 1 of Proverbs 10. That's verse 5 of Proverbs 10. The whole aim of work is to make his name great. Or as I said in the beginning, to make the title Christian represent something more than what we're against to show forth the positive fruits. 
Christianity was founded on the good work of Jesus Christ, and it is meant to continually unfold through the good work of those who are saved. So here's the challenge, installment one in a few-week conversation. Your work should be done, whatever that work is, on the platform of love for God, specifically a love that God's name would be glorified and recognized as high and holy as it is by everyone else. Lock that in, and we'll continue in a week. First Peter says it this way, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. They referenced 1550s, 1500s. The Reformation changed work. And it changed work because it told all the individual Christians in the world, your work is now priestly work. This is called the priesthood of the believer. Your work is now priestly work. And what that means is that all of your work is unto God and all of it is given to you as a means of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So for communion, that's our charge. That's our call. We have to start in the rest of Jesus Christ. We have to start with his finished work. Before we can go do our works, we have to sit in and know his work. And you might think of our liturgy as a church. Every church has a liturgy. Our liturgy as a church is actually quite simple. It ends with rest so that we can go work on the proper platform of worship and love. And so I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to the table. And I want to invite you also to consider what Moses prayed at the end of his psalm. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Done. Done. Right here. Done. The favor of the Lord is upon us because Jesus has, though he was knew no sin, became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Moses sees a precondition to work being blessed. Let the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. That precondition is met through Christ. And now as you come and partake of this table, you can say, the favor of the Lord God is upon me, thanks to Jesus. And now, O Lord, establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Let me pray and then you come. Lord God, we love you. We are so thankful that we can stand on the rock, on the unchanging, perfect, eternal, secure love of Christ, given to us freely without merit. Now, Lord, I pray that you direct our hearts in faith to celebrate the favor we have received so that we are no longer servants but sons, and all the business we do is family business. We are out doing the Father's business. And so, Lord, we thank you. We can come to you as sons. Let this table remind us we are sons and daughters
We are in the family business now. All the work we will do this year, it can be unto you and for you and for your name, and that's really the best why there is. We love you, Lord. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.